Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode are Anne-Marie and Emmett from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today, we're talking about why Netflix is buying lots of gaming companies, the disaster that was BuzzFeed's earnings, and we pick our favourite investing movies. So folks, before we kick off today's episode, I just want to remind you all that we now have an extended version of the Stock Club podcast that you can listen to exclusively in the My Wall Street app. This is completely free to listen to. All you need to do is download the My Wall Street app and set up your free account. And you can also find past episodes of Stock Club there as well and also get notified as soon as a new episode is released. This week, I'm going to pick my favorite elevator pitch at the end of the show and we're going to discuss it in more detail to figure out if it's a good investment or not. So make sure to jump on over to my Wall Street app if you want to listen into that. So guys, welcome to this week's Stock Club podcast, Emmett and Anne-Marie. We can hardly start this podcast off really without mentioning the Oscars, can we? I want to get a quick quick straw poll off you guys. Do you think that slap was faked or not, Anne-Marie? No, I think it was real. You think it was real? Emmett, you put up a poll in our company Slack thinking, asking, was it fake? Have you got your tinfoil hat on? Do you think it was all just a big publicity sp- stunt? Well, you know, there was. I think 55% of the My Wall Street team thought it was a real slap. And I was cynical at first, but I've changed my tune now. And I can announce that I think the slap was, in fact, a real one. And I'll tell you something else. He wouldn't have been as quick to jump up to slap their rock as opposed to Chris Rock. <laughs> yeah, I think he, he picked his his uh, his target well. I think it was real too. I when I first saw it, I was like, that's fake because it was so it was such a a stage a stage slap. But then I suppose that's probably all the slapping Wilson has done in his life has been a stage school. Yeah, when when you kind of saw the shouting afterwards, I think it, it kind of showed it. But um wasn't the biggest news from the Oscars. Of course uh, Apple TV won the Oscar for Best Picture, something Netflix hasn't won. And I think that takes us nicely into the first story, which we're talking about today. We're talking about Netflix, but we're not talking about their video or their movies. We're talking about their gaming. So just this week, it was announced that Netflix had acquired the video game studio Boss Fight Entertainment. This is the company's third acquisition of a gaming company and its second acquisition of a gaming company this year, with Netflix splashing out about $72 million for the Finnish company Next Games earlier this month. Emmett, you weren't here last week, but we talked at length about the reasons why Netflix was cracking down on password sharing and the growing competition that it's now facing from Disney+. Plus. With this recent kind of, you know, dipping their toe into the world of gaming and starting to pick up these gaming companies, what what do you make of this? What do you make of Netflix incursion into the gaming space? Well, I think it's very smart, James. And I, I think it's probably critical to their evolution. In my investing life so far, I've been a long-term shareholder in Chinese game maker Sina, in EA Games, Activision and Take-Two. And I have to admit, when I invested in Netflix, I never considered that someday it would drag me back into the world of uh, gaming ownership, as it, were, as it were. And as you said, it's, gr- it's growing interest for Netflix. All, all this gaming stuff really began in September when it acquired Night School Studio, which 
was an independent game developer known for titles like Oxenfree, which uh, I'm told is a supernatural thriller about a group of friends. In fact, I looked up Oxenfree, which is described as, I quote, a narrative masterpiece, a genuinely creepy creation. Oxenfree combines a clever story and smart dialogue mechanics and superb sinister music to leave a deep and lasting impression on the player that should encourage that all-important second playthrough. So I like the sound of that. Um, Netflix went down to explain to investors during its Q4 earnings call that initial gaming acquisitions are more about setting up Netflix to better understand what consumers want from a new gaming service. Now, they still have to detail how well these games are performing. And so far, they've been uh, actually, I think, quite evasive by only saying things like it's a growing number of daily active users and monthly active users yeah. on its gaming titles. So then, in early March, the company announced that they were making their second acquisition with Finland's Next Games, a developer of mobile games, for a total value of $72 million, as you said, James. And a free-to-play mobile games publisher already has developed titles related to Netflix's biggest productions, such as like Stranger Things and The Walking Dead, and, and the deal is going to close quite soon. Then along came the latest news with the purchase of Texas-based independent game developer Boss Flight Entertainment, where, as was the case with their first acquisition of Night School Studio, no financial terms of the deals were disclosed. So what are they up to? And when you think about it, when or when I think about it, it's not as crackers as it first sounds. Imagine how successful a Squid Game game would have been had it launched during peak Squid hype yeah. <laughs> and how much longer the half-life of that show would have been, you know, as the show recruits gamers and then the game recruits new viewers it keeps the wheels spinning longer, I suppose you could say. Yeah, and even as when you were describing Oxenfree there, what really struck me was, you know, Netflix has spent so much money on, on producing its own content and, you know, it, it's it's narrative content. But it seems to me, and I think we've probably seen it as well with recent things like Red Dead Redemption 2 and, and maybe Grand Theft Auto to agree and other games that I don't know because I'm not a gamer, but gaming has become this big storytelling narrative, you know, entertaining. It's not just, you know, like, um, it's not just Space Invaders. Now there's a big narrative, there's a big storyline. There seems to be a nice bit of overlap there between Netflix's, what Netflix is good at and what gaming is increasingly moving towards. Mm. Well, when I consider that all the giant companies out there have indicated that the metaverse is the future, Apple are going to launch VR uh, spectacles soon, and Facebook has renamed themselves to Meta. What else? Uh, Microsoft has bought Activision. What we're looking at now are baby steps for Netflix in the exact same direction. In the big, big picture, it's really all about how we interact with our entertainment. And today... We, all of us, have fixed notions about how and where we engage with streaming content like Netflix and Disney Plus and all the other ones. But it's as good as certain that in five or 10 or 20 years from now, Web3 and whatever follows will completely re-engineer that interaction. So Netflix moves are something that we should be excited to see. Is gaming like the gateway drug into the metaverse? <laughs> I think so. I mean, they recruited a guy called, uh, what was it? I think it's Mike Verdu, who worked at Facebook and EA Games to lead their, their effort in the gaming world and, and distinguish themselves using all the brand appeal of the shows they've done. And that is their gateway drug. I mean, if I, if I worked in Netflix, my thinking would be that as long as someone is looking at a screen for 
any purpose. That's the competition. Like heaven knows how much time the average person spends looking at their phone, their tablet, their laptop, their iMac, their television, their PlayStation, their Xbox. It's probably most of the waking day for a vast percentage of the global population. And it just makes perfect sense to me that Netflix says, right, okay, well, if they're not watching the latest streaming movie or or show, we really need to be hitting them with something else that's more interactive and more engaging. Yeah, well, actually, a few years ago, Reed Hastings said that he was more afraid of Fortnite than he was of HBO. And of course, his most <laughs> famous quote is that Netflix's biggest competitor is sleep. And Reed, do you think, you know, we often talk about like Netflix and compete, compare it against Disney Plus or Amazon Prime and stuff. Do you think we're being kind of a bit myopic there? You know, is this just a part of a wider attention, a wider, I suppose, drive for that kind of attention economy to get people's attention, no matter what the format or the platform is? I guess it's kind of both. I, th- I think that if the attention economy is is what you can spend time on, I guess you can get much more longevity out of a game than you can a movie. Like a yeah. movie is what two and a half hours, and and that's it. And, and maybe a personal rewatch it. Whereas a game, you know, you could be getting hours, maybe hundreds of hours out of a single person. But I would actually also view the move into gaming as being a portion of the streaming strategy in the sense that we often talk about Netflix lacking IP, as in legacy IP, and we often say that that's one of Disney's most important advantages. Is Oh, they own the copyright to Marvel and Star Wars and, and all of these Disney princesses that people love and they want to continuously engage with. Netflix doesn't own that. And to be honest, they really haven't gone out of their way to acquire legacy IP. It hasn't really been part of their strategy. Mm. And so I would kind of see the move into gaming as a part of a broader strategy to create legacy IP. And that okay. we saw the Stranger Things game was incredibly popular. It was completely mobile-based. It had no in-game purchases. You didn't have to pay for it. It was totally free. And I think Netflix really just viewed that as another opportunity to engage people with the Stranger Things universe and make it into this legacy title that people are going to want to revisit in the future and might have spin-offs and might have more merchandise and, and that type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned there about the the kind of the lifespan of, of a game. Um, in 2021, I think we spoke about this before global gaming revenues hit a total of 180 billion which absolutely eclipsed the box office but even when we compare it to streaming i think streaming brought in something like 70 billion dollars in revenue in 2021 so Emmett, do you think you know we often or people often talk about how much netflix spends on its content you know it's billions every year do you think we could see them spend more and more on this new gaming arm if there's such an amount of money to be made in gaming hmm I think that they said they plan to license the IP for a giant gaming title in the future. I think I heard that on one of their conference calls. Yeah. Pretty sure of it. Uh, I'd have to check. So I suspect that they will explore that avenue. But yes, if this plays out, as we've discussed, I think that dropping billions on game development is part of Netflix's future. Maybe a game where... Uh, you're Chris Rock and you have to dodge slaps. (laughs) (laughs) Trademark that quickly. (laughs) (laughs) You you can have that Netflix free gratis from your ideas generation team here in Dublin. I do do think that uh, it is part of, uh, they haven't made three acquisitions in the space for nothing. There's a bigger picture at play here. I suspect what they're going to do is rundle. Scott Galloway, Professor Scott Galloway has a term rundled, which is bundling added value into an existing subscription service to add a deeper level of value that makes cancelling it almost impossible. And he uses uh, Amazon Prime as an example where you get free delivery of your stuff from Amazon and, and, and streaming TV services, you know, and I don't know, a whole pile of other stuff. I think someone does your ironing as well. I, I don't really know. All I know is I'm not cancelling it. Um, you know, and then, then again, when you look 
uh, only last night, Sony announced that it has a new three-tier PlayStation Plus subscription service, which is launching in, launching in June for like 10 bucks a month where you get two games. And I think they have a higher tier package for 18 bucks a month where you can access 700 streamable games across all their platforms. So, you know, this it's the morphing of boundaries. It's the changing of business models. And it's, it is, as Amory said, it's, it's just getting more... Uh, streaming content, whether it's one way or two way, in and mindset occupancy, it's owning more of your attention as you stare at these bright uh, rectangular screens that are scattered everywhere we go. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I actually interviewed Aaron Bush of Navic. If any of our listeners know that, that interview will be coming out soon. And again, he speaks a lot about you know where the gaming industry is now and where it's going. So keep an ear out for that. But let's move on, and we're coming towards the end of earnings season now but there was one recent report that caught my eye so buzzfeed the company famous for publishing celebrity lists and quizzes that tell you what hogwarts house you belong to reported on their first quarter as a public company after going public via a SPAC back in december and re we know that the past couple of months have been really really tough on newly ipo'd companies and buzzfeed is no exception with its stock down i think about 50 percent from its opening price in the day at the moment but this earnings call seemed particularly chaotic there was blame leveled at Facebook for the co- for the company's performance. There was employees laid off. There's an impending lawsuit from other disgruntled employees over the botched uh, IPO process or, or the going pub- public process. Can you pull kind of BuzzFeed apart for us a little bit? What's going on over there? The headline that came out this week was they had a pretty disappointing earnings call. And so the main thing that we saw was revenue absolutely missed projections. So in their initial stock documentation, it was predicted that revenue for 2021 was going to be $521 million. And they said that they that they believe that would happen because of, quote, rapid scale and monetization with a deep understanding of virality and social. Well, uh, can you translate that, please? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's just BuzzFeed saying, hey, we're really good at making things that people engage with passively on their Facebook feed. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But revenue for 2021 was only 398 million. So they missed revenue expectations by more than 20 percent, which I think obviously was very disappointing to the few investors that seem to be left in BuzzFeed. Um, (laughs) But kind of building upon that, like after that call, they just like they had a lot of internal leaks about stuff that was happening in the company. It just doesn't look great. So CEO Jonah Peretti announced his intention to make another round of deep cuts to their newsroom and that newsroom has already been whittled down by almost two-thirds so i don't know how many people they're going to have left and he also declared that they would be uh, making a strategic shift towards content that requires fewer resources to produce and generates more traffic, which I think people probably from the outside who haven't probably engaged with BuzzFeed since 2014 would be confused about because you would assume that's what BuzzFeed has already been doing. But they actually have been kind of splitting the difference and doing that more kind of passive clickable content and then also having more quality content. And also, I think there was a huge scandal of the same CEO, Jonah Peretti. He made an announcement of the kind of disappointing company results on a Zoom call prior to the quarterly results coming out. And then he basically secretly exited the call before any employees were allowed to ask questions or raise concerns. And so just a lot of internal difficulties at the minute. It doesn't look great. And to me, it really seems like BuzzFeed seems to have gotten sandwiched between a number of pressures. And that most concerningly is the fact that they have quite conflicting branding when it comes to the quality of their journalism. And I think that made it really difficult for consumers to understand the product and engage with it in the way that would best suit BuzzFeed. Because for a really long time, they were using this quantity over quality type business model, which really took advantage of Facebook's algorithm and just made a bunch of like infotainment that would just go viral and people, you know, would engage with for a minute and then move on. But since then, they've built out this actually quite successful news team that's breaking like proper 
super interesting, nuanced stories. Um, they won a Pulitzer Prize this year for a piece that they produced on the persecution of Uyghurs in China. And they also had a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for a very large in-depth investigation that they did into widespread global corruption in the banking industry. And that is not exactly content that you would associate with BuzzFeed. Yeah. And it's not exactly something that you can easily generate money out of, but it is quite successful. And the issue is that this type of journalism comes at a cost. It's like doesn't readily generate ads. And also it means that the journalists who produce this content have to work on it for a really long time. And they're quite sophisticated. And as of last year, they are unionized. And so that has meant that BuzzFeed has had an even harder time because the staff are demanding more money, which they are entitled to because as of right now, BuzzFeed will not even agree to a minimum annual salary of $50,000, which isn't that much for a journalist with a degree. So yeah, it's they just, if they want to produce quality journalism, which I think is a noble endeavor, they need to transition themselves into more of like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, and they need to be asking consumers to pay for it, which I think consumers will pay for quality journalism. But now BuzzFeed has two camps fighting in opposition. They have their viral camp making all the content for your Facebook feed. And they have this much smaller camp that's producing really good quality journalism going out of their way to be due, to have due diligence. And those are now clashing because you can't make money, money both ways. And so we, we heard Jonah Peretti basically say, I'm no longer going to subsidize my quality news team using other portions of the business. And so yeah. I would expect to see BuzzFeed exiting the kind of investigative journalism that they have become celebrated for. Yeah, it really reminds me of, of the conversation we had just last week. And I think Rory made the point in terms of Netflix is that you know if, if you want quality content you need to pay for it and unfortunately especially with kind of that old traditional and, and really in-depth journalism there's just not still not that much of an audience we're starting to see it come back a bit I think with companies like the New York Times and you see I think it was especially around maybe the 2016 election was a big boost for them because people have started to value like real trust trusted journalism but you know we still live in that environment where you know you can win a Pulitzer Prize but people still won't pay you for it I want to get across then to to, to I suppose BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed going public last December so they went public w- by merging with a SPAC called 8905th Avenue but interestingly with this deal and I suppose shadily with this deal the majority of the money that that SPAC actually raised was pulled out ahead of the deal with BuzzFeed closing so about 94% of the money raised are about $270 million surely this raises questions over BuzzFeed going public in the first place and, and raises questions over the SPAC landscape itself. Emmett, what, what's your thoughts hmm. on this? You know, all the money in this company that was floated and, and takes over BuzzFeed all being pulled out before the company goes public then? Mm, that's fascinating. I wasn't aware of that. It really does speak to, uh, it's like a voting machine. When yeah. you think of a product, if you interact with that product, there's a very simple kind of barometer that you can apply to it as an investor, which is how sorry are disrupted would my life be if this product was pulled and ceased to exist? Yeah. And on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being like Wi-Fi, electricity and water to your home and zero being as trivial as it gets, for me, I would put BuzzFeed down at zero or one. In fact, I didn't even know it was still going until we started to talk about it five <laughs> minutes ago. And so thanks, Emery. So like to me, it is utterly trivial. Now I do it's quite interesting to me that they're trying to reorientate or pivot into quality journalism and getting a Pulitzer Prize. It clearly speaks to a business that's trying to reinvent itself. But I think they need a new brand. 
I, yeah. I don't think you go from running these kind of, you know, 10 cookies your mom wouldn't buy you on Facebook to writing <laughs> Perlitzer. <laughs> Actually, I don't even know what their polls are. It's like, what's your favorite cookie? Uh, what's the best Six Flags? Yeah, you know, uh, I don't even know. Don't even ask me. So, <laughs> but like, uh, and then suddenly they're writing these Perlitzer Prize winning pieces that it, the brand is wrong. They must reinvent the brand. So I'd imagine those who are invested in, in the SPAC, what you say was called 980 Fifth Avenue? 890 Fifth Avenue. 890 Fifth Avenue. Didn't like it. Didn't yeah. like the deal. Now, I don't know the makeup of that particular SPAC, uh, but clearly if there's an exit of, exodus of capital as soon as the intended SPAC target is announced, well, then it's the people voting with their feet. And had I been an investor, a 10 books chair, as they all are, or the SPACs are $10 a share before they merge. And I'd heard it was BuzzFeed. I'd have made for the exit, like no interest, no interest. Yeah. That brand was a one or a zero in my mind. So yeah, it's interesting. And I, I really think that in order for them to do a Phoenix and, and rise from the ashes of 10 cookies your mom wouldn't buy you, they need to, to get a new brand. We should do a BuzzFeed style quiz for Stock Club. Which Stock Club <laughs> member do you think you are? Are you an Anne-Marie? Are you a Mike? Are you a Rory? <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't think the world needs that. So let's move it's on. It's funny you didn't put me as a choice. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't put myself either. <laughs> so let's move on then. So don't forget that if you listen to this podcast in the My Wall Street app, you now get some extra My Wall Street member content at the end. This week I'm gonna pick one of the elevator pitches either Emmett or Anne Marie pitched to me. I'm gonna pick whichever is my favorite and we're gonna discuss that company in more depth and figure out if it's a good investment or not. So it's completely free to listen to these episodes in the My Wall Street app. All you need to do is create an account. If you want some more great stuff in my wall street at the moment too we have a new first look on deer and co and a great uh, piece from you Anne marie that explains why ice cream machines in mcdonald's are always broken we've covered this before but i think it's worth going back and covering again because it's such an outrageous story it kind of kind of makes me very angry at, uh, at at the whole ice cream system which is a sentence i never thought i'd say so you can find all of that in my wall street right now Let's move on. We're going to go with a mailbag this week. The mailbag's getting kind of full, so we stuck our hand in and pulled out a question. And this one came from longtime listener Stephen Lynch, who asked, uh, well, he said, I've been really enjoying Anne-Marie's cautionary tales and I've started the dropout on Disney. Love the big short and have the WeWork documentary recorded and Enron on my watch list too. So he asked us what business investing themed films or documentaries are our favourite. He mentioned the dropout there, which I've started watching. It's about uh, Theranos. I pronounce it right this time. Uh, it's about Theranos. It's really, really good. I, I recommend that. But um, Anne-Marie, I'll come over to you first. Any business or investing themed films or docs you think uh, Stephen should watch? I went less for investing and more for business. And I decided to go with Moneyball. Have you guys seen that? Yeah, movie? great movie. Yeah, it's a really good movie. And it's uh, based on the Oakland A's t- t- 2002 season in which the team had like the absolute smallest budget in the league. And they were trying to assemble a team to compete with the Red Sox and the Yankees who had hundreds of millions of dollars to bring players in. And it kind of follows their manager, Billy Bean, who's the and he goes about kind of using statistical analysis to talk about how you just need to find players who get on base. They don't need to do anything else. They can be the weirdest players I've ever seen. And they assemble this kind of team of misfits and uh, try and prove the league wrong. And I think it's a really nice film for kind of reminding yourself that sometimes the old school way of doing things, the traditional way of thinking should be questioned. And it's okay to kind of go out on your own and be a rogue. Yeah. And I think from a, like an investment standpoint, it's a good reminder that like you need to go back sometimes to the numbers and and do, you know, your own little statistical analysis and check in with things on that level and not just allow your fantastical ideas of what 
makes a good baseball player kind of allowed to, to lead your investment strategy because it's funny to watch like the old like scouts fight with billy and he, they're like no he doesn't look like a baseball player yeah he have the right yeah. hair he's too short he throws funny and you're like well he gets on base and that's all he has to do so yeah it's funny because we we kind of we depend a lot on i suppose the right brain kind of stuff here you know company culture and you know the ceo stuff like that but you do always have to go back and actually look at the figures too and and, and make sure you're not being clouded by your own bias yeah absolutely Emmett what about you any uh, documentaries movies you'd, you'd like to point out yeah this is an easy one for me it's the only documentary that I have had a hand in forcing some people to watch and it's becoming <laughs> Warren Buffett which I think was made by HBO and is a real life documentary on the Oracle himself and the reason I say uh, it was forced uh, you might remember James yeah in, on my Wall Street day a few years ago uh, it was mandatory that the entire place sat down and watched yeah, it. Did you like door, it, by the way? Yeah, I did, but the doors were locked. We weren't allowed to leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I did. Fantastic movie. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book. And so here's the blurb from IMDb. It's, uh, the legendary investor started out as an ambitious numbers, obsessed boy from Nebraska and ended up becoming one of the richest and most respected men in the world. Well, for me, becoming Warren Buffett is just a really lovely story of a man with a humble lifestyle, a ton of integrity and, and a rigor in his approach to investing that ultimately led him to becoming one of the wealthiest people in history, only for him to give it all away in the largest philanthropic donation in history. And I think it's a truly inspiring movie and one I think everyone should watch whether or not they have an interest in investing or not. Yeah, you really find out how much he loves cans of Coca-Cola as well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The precisely he was going to McDonald's, like yeah. His, uh, oh, so yeah. His... It's not cans, is it? It's it's he wants it from McDonald's, or is that his breakfast? No, no. I think he has the cans of Coke as well. But like where Susie, his uh, since departed wife, used to leave the exact amount of change in yeah. the coffee cup holder in his car for his drive through McDonald's on the way to work. Like, can you imagine working at a, a drive through window in McDonald's and every morning Warren Buffett arrives for his whatever McMuffin and Coke or whatever it was he got. And, pay, and pays you in change. <laughs> and pays you in change. And there was something so folksy and honest about the guy and his view of the world. And I think the opening scene is he's sitting in a classroom full of students um probably in high school and maybe in college and and he said imagine you're allowed to have any car of your choice you're allowed to choose whatever car you want but that is the only car you're allowed to have for the rest of your life how well you'd maintain that car and how you'd keep it in a garage and you'd keep the engine serviced and the body clean and all that stuff he goes well that's your human body that's your your own personal vessel this is how you should think about your own body and he has a lovely way of bringing big big um ideas down to a single point with anecdotes and stories and the way he analyzes things is is utterly wonderful and it's proven out i mean look the guy who's done well let's get that's handed to him <laughs> yeah not too bad i'm amazed uh, it, it's the best um promotion that coca-cola and mcdonald's could have ever had you know what is he 90 he must be in his his mid 90s now or early 90s at least i think it's late i know charlie's well into the 90s yeah his co-founding partner charlie munger but i i think I think Warren is still in his late 80s, he's still young okay. lad, still young flat. I think he's only yeah. about 88 or 89. I sold my A share in Berkshire Hathaway 10 years ago because, oh God, forgive me, I thought he was headed for the great big gig in the sky. <laughs> I thought, there's no way I, this is going to be around for much longer. Well, there you go. <laughs> 
the best the best uh, story you can get for long term buy and hold investing uh, I've ever heard. Uh, thanks for that, folks. So, uh, Stephen, I hope you've got some uh, Netflix recommendations there to catch up on. Let's move on and finish out today with an elevator pitch. So, I'm going to ask both of you guys to pitch me a company that's on your watch list at the moment, and we'll I'll pick one of them and we'll discuss it in more depth. Emmett, I'm going to come to you first. What company are you pitching me? Mm, I've taken a good look at Allbirds, who, in my words, make really nice shoes. Now, in their words, they are a global lifestyle brand that innovates with naturally derived materials to make better footwear and apparel products in a better way while trading lighter while treading lighter on the planet, using our materials to create differentiated products uh, so that our customers do not have to compromise between looking good, feeling good, and doing good. Today, we serve customers across 35 countries through our e-commerce platform and Allbirds retail stores globally with locations in the US, UK, Europe, New Zealand, China, Japan, and South Korea. You're much more like, succinct. Yeah, or something like that. I don't have their website open or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so they make shoes. And <laughs> what, I was going to say, James? you learned it off just for the podcast. <laughs> well, for me, this had the potential to be a Peter Lynch type of investment. Buy what you know and what you like and believe will be bigger. And in this house, in my home, we all wear all birds and have a few pairs of them. However... I'm not so sure about it as an investment. They may have hit peak relevance. Mm. And I've learned the hard way that investing in stuff that people wear mm. is very, very fickle. And as you yeah. know, James, and I'm sure I, I, I said to you, Henry, I've developed an aversion to fashion and pharma just because I've got it wrong so many times. So when I look at, at Allbirds today, it was, I don't know what it's, official IPO price was because very rarely that is what you see the minute shares are released for active trading but on in early November I think it was November 1st they went live they hit $26 a share they've now fallen all the way down to $6 a share in no time whatsoever so they're now market cap of $913 million and in the last two quarters they last quarter Q421 they met uh, analyst expectations the quarter before that they really really badly missed it so I just think we might have hit peak all birds I want to think yeah. that it's fallen into deep value territory and honestly I, I read their investor relations uh, pack from absolute top to bottom including small print in the hope I'd spot a glimmer of uh, rebirth if you like and I couldn't find it now it might just rise again and when I look at the other shoe companies I've invested in over the years like Decker's who are famous for oak boots and 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 Crocs and and uh, Skechers and uh, I suppose Under Armour did shoes like although to, it's it's not as concentrated they they have a, a habit of hanging around like who would have thought that Crocs for example whatever keep going and Croc? not only keep going but rise again yeah crocs are back i was just about to say <laughs> uh, baby i won't yeah. hear a bad word say about crocs no uh, crocs are back so i think maybe in 10 years all birds will will still be around culturally relevant looking good that might have gone through some kind of uh u-curve with respect to um fashion and relevance but i think they'll be around for a long time i think yeah. they'll do quite well i'm just kind of lukewarm because honestly like you know a lot of our listeners won't remember how 
completely fashionable Ugg boots were. There was a stage where if a if a female wasn't wearing Ugg boots, they were not on trend at all. Or now if you wore them, people would think you're going dressed to a fancy dress as a Yeti or something. Well, you... Uggs are back. Uggs and Crocs oh, Uggs are, are both back. back. Uh, yeah, but the, the short ones, the ankle ones are uh, the ones that are back. So there you go. Oh, can't, can't keep up time. with it. Anne-Marie, no. what about you? What company are you pitching me? Before I pitch, did someone not tell Emmett it's a 30-second pitch? Yeah, exactly. What? It's the, lo- the longest you elevator ride that. in the world. Did you say? <laughs> well, it's an <laughs> elevator it's pitch. It's an Irish elevator where it stops <laughs> on the first floor and then uh, someone shuffles in. Anyway, I'll shut up. <laughs> Emmett went to the top of the Empire State Building and came back <laughs> down. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, actually, my pitch, if we're talking about croc- uh, Crocs and Uggs, my pitch is good because when I owned Uggs when I was a very small child, I did not have actual name brand Uggs. I had the non-knockoffs that came from this company, which is Target. Mm. So Target is a large retailer in the United States. Have either of you guys ever been to a Target? I think I was in one once, but I the can't tell you about it. The cultural excitement around Target in the United States, I cannot articulate for you. The way that American women go feral for Target <laughs> is unreal. Women wander in there. All the, They all have Starbuckses, which is brilliant. Women wander in. They get a Starbucks. They go in there for one item. They walk out two and a half hours later with $200 worth of merchandise and about 90 items. Like, it's just like a wasteland of, of potential in there. And they have all these, like, beautiful clothes and homewares that are all Target-owned brand. But anyway... I have been at Target since I was a kid. It's a very large kind of stable stock, but kind of what draws my attention to it is it had a really great pandemic. And the reason it had a really great pandemic is they tried to fight Amazon by taking their 1,900 plus locations that I have sprinkled all across the United States and turning them into fulfillment centers. And so it meant that when people couldn't come into the store, they would just order off the Target website. And because there's a Target right down the road from your house, they could ship it to you and have it to you in less than 24 hours. Yeah. And that has meant the company did really well all through 2020 and 2021 okay well based on the enthusiasm of that Anne-Marie and based on the fact that uh, I remember the enthusiasm you had for Costco as well which is a similar company Mm -hmm. let's go with your elevator pitch for our deep dive so guys if you're listening to Stock Club not in the My Wall Street app this is where we're going to leave you today if you want to find out more about Target and what we think of it as a potential investment however jump on over to the My Wall Street app and you can listen to the rest of our conversation there remember if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle in future you can always get in touch with us you can find us on Twitter that's at MyWallStreetHQ on TikTok that's at MyWallStreet or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com that's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com If you're enjoying Stock Club, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.